Israel's violence impacts more than just the West Bank and Gaza. You know, Israel's still occupying a part of Lebanon. Israel's still occupying a piece of Syria in the Golan Heights. And these countries are all interconnected. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We're really excited to have with us this week Rania Khalik, who's a journalist with Breakthrough News, co-host with Kevin Gostola of the Unauthorized Disclosures podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. Um, (laughs) And she is a journalist who lives in Beirut who reports on a lot of things, basically. You, you, you're keeping us all informed about the different wars that have been happening in recent years in the Middle East. Um, and um, yeah, we're really excited to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's so good to see you guys. And here yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so good to see you too. Um, so we wanted to kind of start by having you assess where we're at in terms of you know, four months into the Biden administration, you have uh, leaders of the so-called squad, um, you know, specifically Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman from New York, um, who seems to be uh, doubling down on her, you know, kind of habitual statements that um, are very wishy-washy on Palestinian rights. Um, she, as, as our colleague Ali Abunima just, uh, just reported a few uh, weeks ago, um, Ocasio-Cortez recently conducted an interview with the Jewish Community Relations Council, which is an umbrella organization um, that is, uh, you know, very um, uh, kind of central to the Israel lobby uh, movement here in the U.S., um, in which she, and during that interview, she praised Israel's, like, technological marvels, um, especially around its like wastewater treatment uh, technology. Um, you know, and as Ali said, this comes as a, as a surprise to the 2 million Palestinians caged in the Gaza ghetto um, who don't have access to clean water um, because of Israel's ongoing occupation um, and, and, and colonization of Palestine. Can you give us a sense of, of where you see um, the po- political kind of sphere right now and, and how it relates to Palestine? Yeah, you know, I think we have to talk about the what and the how, and then mm-hmm. the how of the what, and then the what of the how. I mean, that's literally, sorry, I just wanted to see how long I could get away with saying that. That was right, that's what yeah. AOC said in her, that's that right. clip that went viral of her, yeah. that entire, you know, word salad of nonsense. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and as Ali pointed out, of really being able to say nothing with a lot of words. Um, but no, I think I think it was uh, what was what was so surprising about that particular episode was two things, and one of them was just the fact that even though AOC hasn't spoken about Palestine really since she's been in office she did use that issue in kind of like a buzzword sort of way Mm -hmm. when she was running because she was reaching out to a progressive base. And at this point, you know, you can't really rile up a progressive base that you want to give you money unless you have decent politics on that issue, at least rhetorically. Right. And so I think that as we see her really shift, um, 
I think what we're seeing is it's kind of there's this sort of new era of, of maybe some progressive politicians using that issue just to say the bare minimum to get progressives to support them who do because most progressives do care about the issue of Palestinian rights at this point. Um, you cannot be a part of the squad and be like explicitly pro-Israel. You either have to be quiet about it or even better, you'll get people really excited if you say Palestinians are humans deserving of equal rights. And that's kind of what she did when she made that comment back in 2018 about the massacre in Gaza at the border where people were being shot for protesting. Um, that said, I mean, we've seen AOC over the last, what, three years now that she's been in office. We've seen her move further and further away or more further and further to the center on a lot of these issues. Um, you know, we saw that she appeased these like sort of pro-Israel zealots who gave her a hard time for speaking to Jeremy Corbyn. That was like a couple of years ago, I'm sure. Asa remembers that quite well. <laughs> um, and then, you know, with other things too, I mean, she's capitulated to uh, the sort of regime change bullies on the internet. I mean, one time she unliked a tweet of mine. She she liked, and I think maybe read, no, she just liked a tweet of mine. It was like about Iran after Qasem Soleimani was killed. And then after people were like, oh, she's evil. She's like an Ayatollah lover. She unliked it. Like, so she's clearly very easily pressured. Um, mm -hmm by you know the israel lobby types by the pro-war types and you know i think that like at the end of the day it says that we you know it says something broader about running inside of the democratic party the fact that you know these people like aoc run they don't accept corporate donations and everyone thinks oh because they're not relying on the weapons industry or the war industry or the Israel lobby to win, that somehow that means they're just gonna have better politics on these issues. But what we're seeing is that all of the, you know, kind of political changes are just rhetorical and nothing else. They're not doing anything with their power. You know, even if AOC was still talking about Palestinian rights, she's not doing anything with her power on this issue or really any other issue related to foreign policy. And so I think that like that's that comes down to an issue of whether we can actually change things from inside the Democratic Party, which is a much broader conversation. And then it also, um, you know, comes down to the fact that we shouldn't be so dependent on these cult-like figures, maybe cult-like is not the right word, but these personalities yeah. that we like or maybe have decent politics to change things. They still need pressure from the bottom. And I mean, I really don't see AOC getting pressured from the bottom on this issue. I What I see instead is I see a lot of progressive groups and not just on the issue of, of Israel-Palestine, but other issues as well, really failing to pressure the squad types because they like them so much. Like they're failing to put pressure on these people who are in power, who actually do sort of listen to their base. And so I think that speaks more to maybe mistakes that movements mm -hmm. are making than to these politicians. At the end of the day, they're politicians. Like, is it really surprising AOC is moving to the center on this issue? No, this is what they all do if they have political ambitions. So what needs to happen is they need to be pressured not to do that and be pressured to go in the opposite direction. Right. Yeah, and it was, like it was when, exactly the same failure in the UK yeah. with the Labour Party. Yeah. Like yeah. The, and you, when you mean like the, yeah, go ahead. When you call out these politicians, like many people have done on the left in the last couple of weeks, um, calling out AOC for, for this and, and other, you know, very centrist sort of stances that she's taken, um, her, you know, her supporters, uh, jump all over you and you know mm -hmm. you then are um, 
canceled or you're being unfair or you're not looking at the other politicians. Why aren't you going after Ted Cruz? You know, like that kind of thing. Um, so it almost makes it um, impossible for, for people to, to you know, stand well, up and, and yeah. It does make it impossible. And again, there's like this split inside you know, the, whatever you want to call the left, it's such an umbrella term, right? But yeah. like people who consider <laughs> yeah. themselves left, um, yeah. which is a lot of different kinds of left. Um, but it's, there's not an agreement among people on the left for how to deal with this. There's a certain segment of them that are like, no, 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 like hands off. They're the ones who yeah. come and yell at you for saying this is not good enough AOC, right? Right. The ones who are like really attached to the personality over the substance. Yeah. And like, that's really all they care about. And then there's another segment of people who are like, no, we need to pressure them. But then one of the problems becomes, and I think this goes back to really the end of Bernie Sanders candidacy mm -hmm. is once Bernie Sanders pulled out of the democratic primary, it's like the left got so lost because there was like nothing that united everybody anymore. And then there's just all these different factions fighting with each other. So like, it's a lack of, you know, centralized organization, I guess, and also a lack of having common goals. Cause I think people want different things. Some people want to just win, you know, win these kind of like symbolic battles by just getting another member of the squad in office and other people want more, you know? And the people who want more are of course the ones being like smeared the most and told to shut up. But as we've seen, you know, also we have to question like what is the role that someone like AOC is playing? Because, you know, She's not like Obama, but she's also kind of like Obama. Like she's not the same kind of neoliberal as Obama in the sort of politics she supports. But at the same time, she is kind of playing this role, whether she means to or not, of like pulling people who are done with the Democrats back inside the party and back inside like the idea of, oh, we can reform it from within. But, and again, this is, goes back to that broader conversation of like how to actually change things in US politics. And I know for, at least on a personal level, like my entire life, I've heard that the Demo you just have to change, you have to get better people elected in the Democratic right. Party. I'm almost 35 years old and that hasn't happened. Like, I don't know how many more years you're supposed to wait before this shift <laughs> Now's this not shift the to the time. left inside the Democratic right. yeah. yeah, I don't know how many more years to wait yeah. for this shift to take place. And on the issue of Palestine, you know, I think it's really, you know, that issue that shows you how little has changed. Cause it's like, no matter what happens that issue just doesn't move no matter how right-wing and frankly like anti-democrat Israel becomes because the Israeli government like hates the Democratic Party but the Democratic Party is still like bowing down to the Israeli government so I think it's a matter it's like a matter of like this ongoing confrontation between those people who are like no we cannot reform this party from the inside and we should be building outside of it and those who are like no we must just you know keep electing progressives yeah, I think it was a very similar failure to what happened uh, in the UK because there was there was a very similar uh, lack of political will to put pressure on from the left. Like in the case of the Labour Party, people on the left were too afraid to put pressure on Jeremy Corbyn because they didn't want to almost uh, pile on. They didn't want to add because it was such a particularly... Uh, you know, egregious smear campaign against Jeremy right. Corbyn. And it was particularly wild, you know, it was particularly um, just sort of crazy that people felt like he's already getting attacks from the right. 
So, you know, we don't want to be attacking him from the left. So because they just sort of felt, I don't know, they always like felt sorry for him, I suppose. <laughs> they just thought, well, we don't, you know, the whole thing is so um, fragile. His position as leader of the Labour Party is so fragile that we don't want to rock the boat. Um, but the problem he was... Lost anyways. They lost exactly. anyway. Yeah, he he, right? he ended up he ended up going anyway. So it was it was a it was mistaken, you know. Um, but and and it's it's like a lesson that the left has has to learn is that you've got to put pressure on from your side, otherwise this is going to be the result. Yeah. Yeah. And people have to, like, people really need to, we need to be able to talk about these things without making it about personality. Like, this isn't about AOC's personality. I don't care about her personality. It's about how you gain power. And we, like, people need to be able to have, like, a good faith conversation about that without it turning into this, like, you know, name calling match. And that's also what it starts to feel like. Like, if you, if you criticize AOC's politics, like, you're, uh, you're joining in with, like, the hard right misogynists or something. Um, yeah. But that shouldn't be the conversation we're having. Like it's, and I think that if you look back at 2016, like do you guys remember back in 2016 or maybe it was 2015 when Bernie was running and he had a really bad position on Palestine. Like I think during the war on Gaza, he was heckled at one of his own town halls by his own yeah. supporters because he gave such a horrible answer about Gaza. He like defended Israel's right to, you know, right. to like defend itself or whatever. Um, and people made a fuss about it and they were loud about it and he responded to it. Like he responded to it and he changed what he was saying on the issue. He listened to people like Cornell West on the issue, you know, and he's still not perfect, but I think that's an example of like, you need to pressure these people. They need you. You're their base, you know? And yeah, if you're angry <laughs> with them, right. Yeah. The whole point is they're not taking money from corporations right. that like they actually will listen to you and those like you. I don't think AOC is quite as left as Bernie Sanders even. Um, but I think that that's an example of like, yes, we, you know, I really liked Bernie Sanders, but I still went after him on that. And so yeah. did a lot of other people who really liked him. And that's how you get what you want from these people, not by like being nice. The other side doesn't get what they want by being nice. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, that's exactly. not how politics works. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like um, something uh, our colleague Ali Abu Nama always says is that the Israel lobby refuses to accept yes for an answer you know they keep on punching and they keep on making their demands and then when they get their demands they instead of saying oh thank you they say no that's not enough we want more <laughs> exactly. and that is something yeah that they don't stop be doing, right right really you know exactly but it's like yeah. I think the left is just so we don't have we're so used to not having any power that right. like the second we get we feel like we get a little bit it's like oh my god I don't want to like upset or ruin it but again yeah that's not how it works and I, I think this extends beyond the issue of Israel-Palestine like I I think when it comes to a lot of issues people like AOC aren't good enough and they should be pushed like what you know the America's sanctioning like a significant portion of the world right now and that literally amounts to like denying medical care and food to people and people in the squad aren't talking about that. And it's because we're not pushing them to, to a certain degree, right? And it's like, we shouldn't be afraid to push. That's the whole point of them being in Congress. If you think that them being in Congress is a benefit, it should be because them being in Congress actually makes a difference in policy. And if you want that to happen, you need to tell them where the policy differences need to be. And yeah, it's like, that's why we should be shouting about Venezuela and, and Syria and Iran and, and Palestine. 
not being like, oh, okay, we'll just wait and see and like, let her take her time. Right. And let the loudest, you know, pro-war regime change supporters be the only voices in the room. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what <laughs> you can see. You can't concede the space to them. Right. You can't concede right. the space to them. And that's so far kind of what we're doing. Like we're concede, not us personally, but yeah, you know, the left ends up conceding the space to those people because they don't want to upset AOC. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, Ronnie, you recently wrote a piece for the Grey Zone. Your most recent piece for the Grey Zone was about Lockman Slim, a pro-Israel collaborator with Lebanon's enemies. Um, can you talk about his record of collaboration uh, uh, with the US and his pro-Israel stances um, and his recent death and how it was politicized? And um, just explain the story basically for people who haven't read it. Yeah, so look, Ben Sleem um, is really this obscure figure in Lebanon. No one, not very many people outside of this kind of small circle of NGO and embassy people really knew who he was. Um, but he was found uh, killed. He was found murdered in his car in South Lebanon back in the beginning of February. And this guy was a very, very um, loud uh, anti-Hezbollah voice in Lebanon. Um, he was almost, he was very extremist in his views against the Shia community in Lebanon because he attached it to Hezbollah so much. Um, and he worked with like every US regime change cutout you can imagine uh, to try and build what they called a Shia alternative to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And this went on for like the last couple decades. Uh, he never succeeded in that goal. Um, and again, like I said, not very many people knew who he was, but this, the Americans and the Germans uh, poured money into his uh, organization, uh, Hayabina, which was this like NGO that operated in Lebanon to find these independent Shias. And by independent, I just mean anti-Hezbollah Shias to kind of like replace Hezbollah. Um, obviously it didn't work, but he lived in Dahia, which is like the area of Beirut, of Southern Beirut, where uh, most, most, most of the community is very pro-Hezbollah and Shia. Um, and from his mansion there, he spent decades hating on Hezbollah, calling for Israel to bomb Lebanon and to bomb Shias. He even publicly at a conference uh, in the UAE called for a Nakba against Shias uh, to wake them up. That's the only way you can wake them up, he said. <laughs> Um, so he was like, and, and this is, these are the things he said publicly, you know, I, I spent like two months working on this piece and privately, you know, this guy, you know, there was people who would attend his little soirees. He would host um, all these like Westerners at his mansion and they would think they were so special because they were drinking alcohol and like a Hezbollah stronghold. Um, and he would just call for, you know, things like, uh, you know, Israel needs to plant 10 car bombs a day in Dahia. 
in order to get rid of Hezbollah. Like that was his attitude. He was a very pro-war hawk. Um, and, you know, more importantly, the reason I, I went into, I even wrote this article about him, like if he's such an obscure figure, why? Is because in the aftermath of his death, uh, immediately, I mean, with zero evidence, zero investigation, just the uh, news that he had been killed, everyone politicized it. The entire, you know, uh, privatized Lebanese media apparatus politicized it and blamed Hezbollah. The uh, embassy, the Western embassies, the Swiss, the Germans, the Americans, um, and all these different U.S. officials and German officials that had really, you know, had worked with him and really liked him, uh, you know, publicly uh, either alluded to or directly blamed Hezbollah and in some cases Iran. Um, and so it was immediately politicized. And I thought his story is so important for a few reasons. One, because I think he's kind of like the perfect encapsulation of the sort of person that the U.S., pours resources into in order to destabilize these countries in the global south. And I mean, whether you're talking about Lebanon or Iraq or Venezuela, um, it's these kinds of elites. And this guy was from a very elite right-wing family that actually back during the Lebanese civil war um, sympathized with and supported the Christian far right. Um, very anti-Palestinian, very anti-poor people. Uh, and you know, it, it's, it, it, again, like it goes back to him being this elite obscure figure really disconnected from so many people in Lebanon, yet the US saw him as some sort of leader. And it kind of speaks to the other types, like people like Juan Guaido, who nobody knew until right. the US, until he declared himself president. People in Venezuela didn't know who he was. He doesn't have a base of support except among other like right-wing elites like him. And the same kind of goes for Iraq. Um, and, you know, I also went into like the sort of ideological foundation that formed this guy's views. And it was really interesting because a lot of it came from these kind of like former, you know, leftists, these ex-leftist Arab and French intellectuals or, you know, intellectuals in quotes, um, <laughs> but intellectuals who, you know, went from the path of being leftists in like the 60s and 70s to turning into like neocons basically. Um, and that's the kind of person that this guy, Lukman Slim, was influenced by, but also to get to the real meat of the story is the kind of work he was doing. No one knows who killed him. Um, but like if Hezbollah wanted to get rid of him, they had like two decades to do it and they didn't because it doesn't seem like they really ever saw him as a threat. I mean, criticizing Hezbollah doesn't get you in trouble, Lebanon, uh, in contradiction to what the US media tells you. I mean, half the Lebanese political apparatus and media is openly, vocally, uh, loudly anti-Hezbollah and every day criticizes them and blames them for all the country's problems and nothing happens to them. Um, so Lebanon's not the kind of place where you can't express your views about Hezbollah. That's just absolutely wrong. But look, Ben Slim in the past year or so had started to get involved in more than just, you know, criticizing Hezbollah and calling for Israel to bomb Lebanon. He was actually working to collect information on uh, Shia and, and Syrian businessmen to put on U.S. sanctions lists. And so he was started to engage in spying, him and his some of his colleagues did. Um, and this, you know, is where things get a little like, you know, when you do that, this is not, again, this is not to like justify anything that happened to him. Um, this is just to say, when you start to get involved in spy games, you make very powerful enemies. If you're trying to put powerful, wealthy people on sanctions lists, you know, that destroys people's lives. When they get on sanctions lists, they can't get off. 
Um, they can't access their assets. They can't travel anymore. You know, it destroys you. And so if you start making enemies out of people like that, then the list of who might have done this gets really, really, really long. Um, but yeah, and, it, and, and so it also, again, like go, and it goes into like this kind of person who really just calls for foreign intervention and for America and the West to destroy their country. Um, and it happens again and again. So I encourage people to go check out the article. It's like 10,000 words long, which I know is a little much, but, but I, it's, it's, I think it's interesting, not necessarily because of this one individual, but because it speaks to a broader phenomenon uh, from the Middle East and from Latin America and other parts of the world. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, he was uh, a member of the uh, Shia Islam sect, the sector member of the Shia sect of Islam. Um, and so it, the reason that um, he was sort of, uh, he, he was these Western uh, ambassadors and, and uh, diplomats and so forth and everybody else were trying to cultivate him as a source or, uh, you know, as more, potentially more um, was that he was uh, a Shia and that, uh, well, could you explain the dynamics around that and how, you know, and what Hezbollah so, represents? So Lebanon is a, has, a, has a sectarian uh, based political system where um, each sect in the country has a certain amount of representation in the government. It's interestingly enough, a system that was introduced by the French because Lebanon was, um, you know, hand given. It was a place that could be given. Um, <laughs> it was it was given to the French when the French and the British uh, cut up the Middle East uh, yeah. back in the Mandate days, right after World War One. Yeah, exactly um, the so, same time that they. Which is how Palestine, right? Which is how British the British gave got over. Palestine. The British right. gave Palestine over. Yeah, to the Zionists. It was, it was theirs again. It was theirs to give, right. or so mm -hmm. they think. So the Le Lebanon was actually, actually Lebanon was kind of cut off. Like it's this tiny country. I, I, sometimes I don't even think places with this many people should really be countries. It's like the has some of the, uh, less people than the state of Virginia does. Hmm. Um, but Lebanon was kind of cut off out of like the Middle East to be a Christian country. That was the idea because it had a large Christian population. Um, and so the Christians have a very large number of people. They have representation uh, in the presidency. The Shias get representation in the speaker of parliament. And the, um, and the Sunnis get the prime minister, right? Uh, and that's how it's split. And it, it, you know, this is the kind of system that gives rise to like clientelism. And that's why in Lebanon, you have these parties that identify as sect, by sect, right? And Hezbollah, of course, came about in the 80s uh, because of Israel's occupation of Southern Lebanon. Um, it was brutal. I mean, you know, what, what the Israelis did to Southern Lebanon is very similar to what they've done to Palestine. Um, they, you know, they ran torture prisons. They had local collaborators who worked on their behalf as well. And so Hezbollah came, you know, arose as like a, a, a resistance organization to the Israelis in the South. And ultimately over like, a you know, over the years, they managed to kick the Israelis out in the year 2000. Um, and then they of course gave the Israelis uh, you know, a good fight in 2006 when the Israelis once again invaded Lebanon. Um, and usually when the Israelis invade and bomb, 
one thing you have to understand about Lebanon is historically it's been the South where it's a majority Shia. So it's the Shias of Lebanon who have suffered the most at the hands of Israel. Um, and that's why, you know, Hezbollah as a Shia organization by a large portion of the Shia community in Lebanon, not everybody, obviously, but a large portion is seen as this, like, re as this resistance group, as this group that protects uh, Lebanon and Shia specifically from this existential crisis, this existential threat of Israel. In recent years, that level of, per, per, you know, uh, perceived protection extended not just to Israel, to protecting Shia, Shias in Lebanon from Israel, but also protecting them from the threat of ISIS and Al Qaeda. Uh, and their biggest enemy, as they see it, is the Shias. They like they want to kill all Shias. They hate the Shias more than anything. Um, and so Hezbollah really has become this organization that's that, in their mind, really protects Lebanon's sovereignty and territorial integrity from these two big threats: the threats of like Salafi jihadists, as well as the threat of of, of Israel, but other parts of the country because they haven't been targeted by Israel. Because you know, when Lebanon's bombed, it's not all of Lebanon that's getting bombed. It's Shia areas, areas that are, you know, that Israel thinks is Hezbollah areas. So there's one sect that gets destroyed. And so the other sects, not this is, and this is, this is a very general overview, but the other uh, sects in Lebanon and their parties, like the, the future party, for example, which is the party of Saad Hariri, it's a Sunni party. Um, and then you have like the Lebanese forces, which is a Christian party, far right Christian party. Um, these parties and their bases don't see, they, they don't see Israel as a threat because Israel doesn't attack them. Um, in fact, their policy, their politics align with Israel. And these parties actually blame Hezbollah for all the problems in Lebanon. They think that if the country just got rid of Hezbollah then and became friends with Israel, then they could just like be a normal country and have a great economy and America would support them and all would be well. And so this is where someone like Lukman Slim comes in because Lukman Slim agrees with those parties. He, he opposes Hezbollah and he, he, in his mind, thinks that Hezbollah is like the reason Lebanon has problems. Iran is the reason Lebanon has problems. We need to align with the Gulf states. We need to align with Israel. Israel is the future. Palestine is the past. Um, and in order to do that, we need to cultivate Shia leaders who can replace Hezbollah. And so that is how he sold himself to the Americans as somebody who could cult cultivate as somebody from, from like the, the Shia sect who could cultivate these Shia leaders, right, who could uh, be like Nasrallah, but with pro-Israel politics or something, which is laughable because, you know, like mm -hmm. if you understand the reason Hezbollah is popular, then that doesn't make any sense. And so he got lots of money from the Americans to do this for like two decades um, until the Americans eventually actually under Obama pulled a lot of that funding because it wasn't working, not because they didn't believe in it anymore. Um, and then the Germans kind of took over the place of the Americans and started funding his project to find independent Shias. And his project to find independent Shias went beyond just Lebanon. It was like trying to find people in Iraq as well, right? Because there's also this kind of parallel issue in Iraq of like these Iran-linked militias and their popularity and how we have to find, you know, pro-American Shias. To, to like, you know, be more popular than the pro-Iran Shias. And so it's just the US's fight against Iran playing out in Lebanon. And in, 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 in that plays out through like, you know, this whole like Shia situation. And it's so textbook. I mean, you, you brought up Juan Guaido in Venezuela. I mean, it's basically the same cutout, you know, uh, project. Um, amazing.
Yeah. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit more about the how how this um, how you know Western imperialism continues to shape the region. Um, you mentioned a little bit about Syria. Uh, Nora, um, um, yeah. can I just uh, make one yeah, more yeah. point about uh, Lockman Slim? Yeah, yeah. Before we move on to that, yeah, um, yeah, Ronnie. What something I found really striking in your article was that just how bad <laughs> their information was basically <laughs> like i mean you made a reference yeah. to you know he he wanted to try and persuade the americans to cultivate shia leaders who would have the stature of uh the hezbollah leader hassan nasrallah um you know <laughs> just sounds ridiculous yeah <laughs> but, 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 but who loves israel get, and the u.s yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the guy couldn't even get basic things correct you amazing know? right well, he, cause he wasn't, he wasn't like attached to his own community. Like he, he identified as Shia to the Americans as like the Shia on the ground has like, I'm the Shia whisperer, but he was like a secular guy. Um, <laughs> totally. I mean, he would have these, like everybody, I spoke to so many people who would attend his gatherings. Like he would have, he would host these parties at his mansion. Um, and like, you know, he'd always be drinking, which is fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But like, that was to him almost, it, to these kinds of people, it's almost like a protest just to drink. Cause they think they're like showing the Iranians, like, yeah. you know, like <laughs> how it's oh. really done. But he wasn't, again, he wasn't really connected to his community and he looked down on it, which is why he called for it to be bombed all the time. Because she is also in Lebanon, historically the peasant class. Um, and he's just part of this group of Shia elites, Shia right-wing elites, but like, he doesn't, like, again, he has no base of support. I mean, I can't tell you how many people all after he died and then after my article came out, messaged me to be like, I hadn't even heard of this guy. Like she is in Lebanon. Wow. Like I haven't, I didn't even heard of this guy until he died. I know who he was. Um, so like, that's, that's the other thing is like the U.S. cultivates these figures who actually have no connection to their own communities at the end of the day. And they do it in every country. Like if you think about the kinds of people they cultivate in Syria, or in Libya, these like governments in exile, or in Iraq, the government, they had like the Ahmed Shalabis of Iraq, right? Yeah. They created this kind of government in exile before they took, took, before they took out Saddam. And then once they did take out Saddam, these people couldn't govern anything because nobody, they like, they hadn't lived in their country for a very long time and also just had no connection to the people there. And so that, that, at the, that's like one of the, you know, um, funny things about Western imperialism is the kinds of people they cultivate don't actually have any control over the people and the places they want them to take over. Yeah, I think, funny. yeah, I, it's pretty <laughs> funny. I, I, I think quite fittingly, like the Israelis are sort of the same, like they, yeah, to an extent, they, they try and cultivate these collaborators, um, but they have absolutely no stature within their communities, you know, within the, within the Palestinian right. communities, you know. Uh, and you see that with they, these sort of no-name people they, the Israel lobby promotes as well as like... <laughs> yeah, oh, this is a, like this the is Muslims a... that they promote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. or it's like, oh, this is a brave Palestinian who's speaking out against Palestinian oppression. And it's like, no, no one's ever heard, heard of the guy. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really, really exactly. low quality they have of. Um, <laughs> it was also funny too, because for a lot of these people it becomes like a scam. Um, yeah. So like, yeah. like it becomes like a, you're just making money from Western governments. Like, 
and sometimes oh, charging so both overt. countries for the same yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. right. So great, right? It's like a great way to make an income, I guess. Been, and in yeah. a country like Lebanon, it actually becomes really dangerous because a lot of people are financially struggling right now because of the collapse of the economy. And so one of the only sources of like jobs becomes like not the only sources, but a source of income becomes working in the sort of like collaborationist sector. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I wanted to turn um, uh, to, to another country in the region and kind of just have you talk about what's happening right now in Syria and how it relates to what we've been talking about, Israel and Western hegemony in the region, imperialism, um, and, and kind of how you see like, I mean, obviously like at the gray zone and, and your work, um, many other independent anti-imperialist journalists, um, you know, have been writing a lot about, about, you know, the last few years of, uh, you know, what had happened in Syria and how it, um, you know, re really a wedge was driven by people who were very, very intent on um, backing the imperialist movements um, and, and, and getting regime change, um, you know, started in their country. Um, and it and it really split the movement, the Palestine Solidarity Movement, and we're still dealing with those, you know, with that ramification. I mean, years later, but even in like you know, progressive media. I mean, uh, the radio station I used to work for, um, I've I've heard several times now, you know, people from Bellingcat and these like U.S. State Department funded think tanks that kind of promote themselves as like human rights uh, investigative, you know, outfits, um, but are taking State Department money yeah. and are working to kind of uh, promote and prop up these absolute lies in order to justify regime change in Syria, in order to bolster Israel's, you know, designs on, on that country. Um, and the U.S.'s, you know, desires for continued imperialism in the region. Um, talk, talk about, you know, it's such a huge question, but like talk about what you see <laughs> right now in terms of the Syria discourse and how that relates to what we've been talking about. So, I mean, Syria is an interesting case because, yeah, obviously it did um, fracture Palestine solidarity in the U.S. And I think it actually also fractured the issue of Palestine in the Middle East. And I can get back to that in a little bit, yeah. but... I mean, if you look at what the U.S. did to Syria, I think the reason it was so easy for that issue to fracture the left is because it wasn't cut and dry in the sense of like the U.S. invaded Iraq with its army, right? Um, and it was like, unless you were a right winger or like a, you know, centrist Democrat, you didn't support it. Um, it was a, it was a very explicit in your face war, whereas Syria was this, uh, covert, you know, program to arm and fund all these, you know, this collection of extremist groups to overthrow the Syrian government by using the Arab Spring, right? By using these protests that had erupted across the region and had inspired a lot of people. You know, we watched it happen in Tunisia. We watched it happen in Egypt. Um, and they did the same thing in Libya. You know, you watched some protests erupt in Libya and then in Syria, and very, very quickly, those things were used as opportunities to pursue imperial goals, which is state collapse. Um, that's what happened in Libya, it turned Libya into yeah. a 
you know, power vacuum of competing militias. And till this day, it's a very unsafe, unstable country, one of the most stable, formerly stable countries in North Africa. And in the case of Syria, um, you had the US, you had all these Gulf countries um, and Turkey, uh, and in some cases, Israel, uh, basically allied together to, you know, fund this, this covert operation that wasn't so covert to arm and fund these extremist groups across to collapse the country. Uh, and it almost worked had it not been for Russian and Iranian intervention. It would, it would have worked for particularly Russian intervention. You know, you could have seen a scenario where Syria had fallen under the, or like or Damascus had fallen under the control of like Al Qaeda. But just and to stop you there, it, I mean, in my view, mm -hmm. it did work to a large extent because as you know, like the US now occupies, what is it, a third? Of so Syrian yeah, territory? so there's there's right. three areas of Syria. So so that's that's like that's the base. I think at this point a lot of people recognize that that happened. Even or though like even people who are still pro regime change will recognize that okay, yeah, like our weapons and fundings got into the hands of some bad groups. How did that, like, that happen? Was accident. Right. That was, how did that happen? But then you have, you know, you have like Joe Biden on camera yeah. being like the UAE or being like our Gulf state allies in Turkey basically funded ISIS. My constant cry was that our biggest problem is our allies. Our allies in the region were our largest problem in Syria. The Turks were great friends and I have a great relationship with Erdogan, which I just spent a lot of time with. The Saudis, the Emiratis, etc. What were they doing? They were so determined to take down Assad and essentially have a proxy Sunni-Shia war, what did they do? They poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tens of thousands of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad. Except that the people who were being, who were being supplied were al-Nusra, and Al-Qaeda and the extremist elements of jihadis coming from other parts of the world. Now you think I'm exaggerating, take a look. Where did all of this go? So now what's happening? All of a sudden, everybody's awakened because this uh, outfit called ISIL, which was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which when they were essentially thrown out of Iraq, found open space and territory in, in Western, uh, excuse me, in Eastern Syria, work with al-Nusra, who we declared a terrorist group early on, and we could not convince our colleagues to stop supplying them. You know, um, at this point, like that, it's recognized that that happened. That that part of the war on Syria has largely ended, yeah. right? Like the U.S. and all of these other countries have stopped funding and arming this like different collection of like Al Qaeda clones. That said, now you have a situation in Syria where a large portion of the country is being occupied by other countries as a result of this whole war. And there's three areas. There's you know. Um, Turkey is kind of occupying two areas, I would say. There's like the Euphrates uh, shield zone, which is like Afrin, which, you know, you might remember a couple of years ago, Turkey did this operation to like take this Kurdish area and they did. Um, and then some other areas in the Aleppo countryside. And that's where the Turkish military actually is pretty much in charge. And then you have Idlib, which is under the administration of the Salvation Government, which is under the control of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is the former Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. 
Um, but you know, that's also, there's also like, I think 13,000 Turkish soldiers there. This is a huge chunk of Northern Syria. That's basically no longer in Syrian hands. And it's a direct result of this war. And in Idlib, you have all these former Al Qaeda members that we now don't call Al Qaeda anymore. Um, that it's like the, you know, that have this huge base of operations there now. And you could see that being a global security threat not too far in the future, much the way that Afghanistan became a global security threat after the US armed in front of the Mujahideen in the 80s. And then you have this other area of Syria that's uh, under the control of a US proxy, which is called the Syrian Democratic Forces or the SDF, which is really just the YPG. I'm sorry to get into all these acronyms, but it's really, well, the YPG is the, the Syrian PKK, right? The Kurdish group that like is Kurdish nationalists. Um, and wants like its own country. Um, so that's what the SDF is. The US had to rename it because technically the PKK is a terrorist group and Turkey's an ally. But anyways, this area where the SDF is in charge overseen by a couple thousand American troops, um, this area is the most fertile area of Syria. That's its bread basket. That's where food is grown. That's where, you know, uh, oil is in Syria. That's the oil in Syria is in this area. And so it's not a coincidence that the SDF under the US, you know, funded and armed by the US is occupying this area. And as a result, you know, on top of this, you have sanctions on Syria, like crippling start. I would call them almost starvation sanctions. No one's starving mm. quite yet, but they could in the future, but crippling sanctions that have, like people don't have electricity. The, there's a fuel shortage. The currency is like, has no value anymore. People have no economic future whatsoever in this country because of these sanctions. Um, it's basically like a medieval siege, but these sanctions have made it so that the Syrian government, like their currency has no value anymore. And so because of where the SDF is occupying, the Syrian government has had to buy back its own oil from the SDF and buy wheat from the SDF, from its own territory. But because wow. of the sanctions, they can't even afford to do that. So Syria, which is located in the most oil-rich part of the world, has a fuel shortage, which is completely man-made. Um, so that's the situation Syria is facing right now. I mean, you don't hear it covered like that in the media because there's still this deliberate effort to make everything about demonizing the Syrian government. And, you know, I mean, look, like the Middle East has a bunch of really bad governments. Syria is not the only one. Um, no one, that's not really the reason this is happening. It's not happening to Syria because their government is bad. If that was the case, then all of these policies would apply to like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the UAE and Jordan and all these other countries that have like, monarchies and dictatorships and they all torture. I mean, that's not new. This is how all these countries function. The reason this is happening to Syria is because Syria wasn't playing ball. Syria was hosting Palestinian resistance organizations. Syria's allied with Iran. You know, Syria plays a role in what's called the resistance axis. Um, and Syria, th that is a challenge to Israeli, American and Saudi hegemony in the region. And I mean, at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia and Israel are really just arms of America. So that's why this is happening to Syria. And that's why all of these Syrians are needlessly suffering and dying um, as punishment because the US failed to overthrow the government um, and so now it's just like sanctions, tr you know, trying to use sanctions to not just do it, but also to punish. I mean, these sanctions are so severe that they prevent Syria from rebuilding anything. Like Syria can't import the raw material it needs to just rebuild people's homes. 
Like that, that's not to punish the government. That is like to collectively punish the entire population. And that's what you're seeing happen in that country right now. And so it's a real shame that there's still all this disinformation about Syria and all of these like progressive and left outlets are still getting it so wrong because, you know, in the nineties, there wasn't this, I don't think there was controversy over opposing sanctions on Iraq. Um, and, and, and that's what's happening in Syria right now. You're having a generation of people like, yeah, I don't think people understand sanctions is such a cold word and it's so emotionless. So like, it's, it, I understand, I get why people don't understand what it means, but it, the level of devastation and suffering that sanctions cause, I mean, just to your basic daily life, but also the way it really shatters the fabric of your society. Um, it, it results in like this brain drain where all of the pro professional class leaves, like doctors and engineers and teachers, the people that you need for like a functioning society have all left Syria are all leaving Syria. And this is gonna have like a long-term impact on the ability of this country to be normal and to function. It's from big things like that to small things. Like the last time I visited Syria, I couldn't open the app uh, Slack, which at the time I had to use to communicate with my work. I When I opened it, it would say like, you can't open this in this location because of US sanctions. Um, so like little things like that, you can't watch Netflix, right? Like you can't, um, you can't use Tinder. If you have a Syrian telephone number in Lebanon, you can't use Tinder on your Syrian telephone number because of US sanctions. So like it goes from the big to the little that this like just makes it impossible for Syrians to be a part of the rest of the world. How do you think that, you know, people who consider themselves on the left or progressives, um, how did they get this so wrong and continue to get it so wrong on Syria? I mean, I think there was a deliberate, well-funded effort to confuse people on Syria, right? To justify humanitarian intervention, as they call it, uh, to justify this kind of like covert program of a billion dollars to arm and fund people they called freedom fighters, but who were actually like the kinds of people that none of us would want to live under because they would, um, you know, forced us to live under really draconian, misogynistic, racist laws. Um, that, that in order to cover that up, you need propaganda. So that's one. But I think the other thing, you know, the other part of it was just the lack of, you know, ability for people to actually visit and see for themselves. And the, it's funny because the reason people couldn't visit like the opposition held areas of Syria was because they might get kidnapped and ransomed off to ISIS. Like, so, I mean, instead of actually like journalists at one point weren't going to these places anymore. So they were relying on this media infrastructure inside of opposition held areas that was like a hundred percent funded by the Gulf States and America to lie about what was happening in these areas. So East Aleppo, wasn't under the control of like a Harar al-Sham, which is basically just like Al-Qaeda. It was under the control of like really brave, moderate rebels, right? So I think that was a part of it. And then the other part was like the Syrian, it was very difficult for people to get into Syrian government areas. Um, the Syrian government didn't really care about getting its narrative out to the West. They were more concerned with like domestic concerns about how people domestically saw the fight. So it wasn't always easy, but that said, I've been to Syria on more than one occasion with other Western correspondents and we see the same things and what they write isn't accurate. So like, mm -hmm. it's also like the people who are covering the conflict have really adopted the side of the opposition. They really did, you know, they were mostly covering it from like Beirut and Istanbul and Gaziantep. 
Um, but when they did get a chance to go, they sympathized so much with the opposition people that they met that they, it's kind of like when people cover Israel, they like spend time in these like Israeli cities and they start to sympathize and really have the same viewpoint as the Israelis do. Um, that's kind of what started to happen with the issue of Syria. But then also you have this like think tank industrial complex, right? You have these think tanks that are funded by the State Department, by weapons companies, by NATO, by Saudi Arabia and Turkey uh, and their foreign ministries. And these think tanks, right? They give us these people who call themselves experts, who talk like experts, but really they have a nasty agenda. And they get to go around, you know, portraying themselves as the experts on this issue and lying like you do, like you see with Bellingcat. But they're just like state and weapons company funded entities, and that's their agenda. And that did a lot to confuse the left. And then I also think this goes back to the issue of Palestine. I also think it's a mix of all of these things. And so I don't want to blame it on just this, but on the left, because of the war on terror, because of the issue of Palestine, because of the way that like the left became aligned um, with various like Muslim groups, for example, that were anti-war on terror. Um, the, the, the like Arab and Amer Arab and Muslim Americans were impacted by what was happening during the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring really gave rise to this, like, I would call it like a, almost a Sunni victimization complex. This is what the media was feeding, like Assad is committing genocide against Sunnis, right? It's like Alawites and Shias against Sunnis. And I think that really impacted the way the Arab, immunity, Arab Americans saw themselves. I mean, I saw friends of mine for the first time identifying by their sect in America, and I'd never mm. seen that before. Mm. Um, and then you also have like the, you know, the fact that like a lot of Arabs and Muslims who were involved in the anti-war on terror stuff had these really like very strong opinions about Syria in some cases that were very pro-opposition and wanted regime change. And so I think that like the leftists involved in these groups were a little bit confused about who they should listen to. Like I, you know, on the one hand, I want to be opposed to intervention. On the other hand, all of these Arabs, and, you know, the, these Arab and Muslim activists I'm allied with are telling me the opposite. And, you know, I think the other thing we forget about too is like, just because somebody has good politics on Palestine doesn't mean they're going to have good politics on the entire region, you yeah. know? And there is like, you know, there is this like Syrian exile community in America, not all of them, but some of them are from these like elite families that whose land was taken away, you know, during redistribution under the Bathist and they have these like old vendettas. Um, and so there's a reason they hate the, the government in Syria. And like, that's their view. You also have this history of like Muslim brotherhood versus the Syrian government. And then there's like the descendants of some of those people who were part of those wars who still have that like, you know, anger and, you know, vengeful stance against the Syrian government. And so I think that played into all the confusion on the left because you had people who were like really good on the war on terror, who then because of maybe their personal experience or because of their family lineage had really bad opinions on like Libya and Syria. And that, you know, ended up being like a huge contradiction that exploded inside the Palestine solidarity movement. Yeah. And we're still picking up the pieces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, let's bring it back to Palestine. Um, you know, and you alluded to this uh, earlier, Palestine tends to be decontextualized as an isolated issue in the region. Um, can you talk about how Israel's settler colonialism is contextualized in a wider region torn by U.S. imperialism? Like, you know, how, how do people in Beirut, where you are, 
um, talk about Palestine as opposed to people in, you know, DC or New York? I mean, Palestine used to be like even like 10, 15 years ago, a very uniting issue across the Middle East, right? Um, a lot of people were united in their support for Palestinians and, and their antagonism towards Israel because they saw Israel as this imposed colonial entity that was an arm of the Europeans and the Americans in the region, which is absolutely accurate. And that was imposing its will on the region in a really violent way. Um, I think that really all changed after the Arab Spring um, because the Arab Spring, the US used the Arab Spring as an opportunity to basically destroy Israel's remaining enemies or to try mm. to destroy Israel's remaining enemies. That's what the war on Syria was about. Um, and, you know, you have the, like, I think that in the US, there's been this, and I can only speak to the US, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but there maybe is a parallel there. But in the US, it, is the issue of Palestine developed so much support in a really great way. People organized around it so much. But I think a mistake that was made was that it was always, it became an issue that is isolated from the rest of the region. So Palestine has nothing to do with Iran. It has nothing to do with Syria, nothing to do with Lebanon. We just talk about Palestine and only Palestine. But like the problem with that is that not only are there Palestinians like living um, as refugees in all of these Middle Eastern countries, uh, but Israel's violence impacts more than just the West Bank and Gaza. You know, Israel's still occupying a part of Lebanon. Israel's still occupying a piece of Syria in the Golan Heights. Yeah. And these countries are all interconnected. Like the, you can't, by disconnecting these places as though they're separate, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Palestine, you're actually really abiding by the colonial borders that were drawn on them. You know, people have families in all these places. Yeah. Like I have family in both Syria and Lebanon um, because, you know, these borders used to be very fluid. Um, people used to move up and down. My dad tells me like, my dad was, my dad's pretty old. He was born in like 1941. And he tells me how he can remember when he was like a kid, his dad would take a train from, um, from like Beirut to, to like Yaffa to get oranges. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that, that's the region. It was like, it was like, you know, if you think about the United States and how you have states and you just drive across state lines, that's what the Middle East used to be like. Yeah. Um, so all these places are completely connected and the places that, you know, the U.S. basically punishes any country that acts independently of its interests and that rejects this kind of like this, the, the Israel's, Israel's violent existence in the region, Israel's violent colonialism in the region. Any country that does that is punished. So you cannot separate the issue of Syria from Palestine. Like I mentioned earlier, Syria was playing host to Hamas leaders, Islamic Jihad leaders, like these groups that fight Israel and Gaza, uh, to Hezbollah. Syria had a very close alliance with Hezbollah um, and Iran. So that's why Syria was targeted. That's the reason Syria was targeted because of its antagonism to Israel. Um, and so when you when you separate these things, like you have to like you have to understand Israel's colonial project reaches far beyond the West Bank and Gaza. And if you don't see it like that, then you're not going to understand. Like the only reason Palestinian resistance exists is because of the countries that continue to support it that the U.S. is trying to destroy. So you can you know bend over backwards and like you know, try and like formulate weird ways to like pretend that's not the case, but it is. It is the case that Iran is connected to the issue of Palestine. Like you can't disconnect. You can dislike Iran all you want, but if you call it a regime change Iran and you get your way, like Palestinians lose a, lose a sponsor. 
Um, and so like, that, but again, like there's also this kind of liberal NGO discourse that's taken over the issue of Palestine where it's all in the US, at least the most dominant voices, it gets broken down as nothing more than an issue of like human rights. It's just an issue of human rights. Palestinians are treated very poorly. That's it. And like, that's another way that you end up papering over the way that Israel and Saudi Arabia and America and their allies like are ruining the region. The issue of Palestine is completely wrapped up in American imperialism. And until you get that, like, not only are you not gonna get to the, the, the right kind of solution, the solution you might end up with one day, which you're kind of getting close to, is a Palestine that is like just a bunch of US-backed Palestinian leadership, which is kind of what you have in the West right. Bank. That's, right. the, that's the sort of format of, of governments that the US imposes on the region. Um, not just in the West Bank, but also in other places like Jordan <laughs> and other places like, you know, all of these Gulf states, they're just like extensions of America and Israel at this point. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think one of the reasons that, that, that you have that happening in the US, it's not just the human rights rhetoric, but I think it's also like, you know, a lot of the Palestine solidarity movement in the US has, and this isn't a bad thing, but there's like a lot of liberal, like liberal Jews who are very, very upset with the behavior of Israel as they should be because they're like, well, this is they're they're speaking in the name of Judaism and like, this isn't what Judaism is. And I oppose this. And that's really great. But when you have like, mostly like this kind of liberal mentality, that's kind of wrapped up in identity becoming the sort of like most prominent voice on the issue of Palestine, then it, it takes on a liberal veneer to it. Where like, again, it papers over imperialism because liberals yeah. don't really get imperialism. Yeah. <laughs> like they just don't, <laughs> they just don't. So there's like all of these problems taking place. And, you know, as for the way the region gets, like the way it gets covered in the region, like there's increasingly, the region is in such a state of disaster, uh, especially in the countries that were kind of bases of support for Palestine. People have so many other issues like because of sanctions <laughs> um, yeah. and because of like financial collapse that it's not an issue that's on their mind. Like Israel could start bombing Palestine tomorrow and a lot of these people probably like wouldn't blink. Um, mm. And the other issue too is like these normalization campaigns across the region have done a really good job, especially with the propaganda arms of the Gulf states of pushing this line of like, if you just make peace and normalize with Israel, your country can be rich and prosper. Mm -hmm. And you look at these models like the Emirates and like Saudi Arabia and like the, who have nor who are, well, I don't know Saudi Arabia hasn't officially normalized, but they might as well have. But you look <laughs> at these in Bahrain and these countries, these are seemingly stable countries because no one's trying to regime change them. And no one's like, trying to push them into civil war um, because they play ball with American imperialism. And so as a result, you hear this new theme in places like Lebanon. I hear this all the time where, you know, from people I'm surprised to hear it from where if we just, why don't we just like, why do we fight Israel? Right. If we just make peace with them, we can be like the Emirates, like Saudi Arabia will come save us. And it's not true, Amazing. but that's the mentality right. now. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, there is a parallel in the UK. It was very, very similar circumstances um, in the UK to in the, in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. You know, that there was this dynamic after 9-11, um, after the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq, there was a coalition built between, coalition is probably the wrong word, but, but, but 
that between um, Muslims, politically engaged Muslims, and the left. Um, so, it, and uh, you know, people were very active on the issue of Islamophobia, and mm -hmm. and on the issue of Palestine. You know, in the um, the the February two thousand and three demonstration against the war in Iraq when Iraq was just about to be invaded when there was there was about two million people marching against the war in in Britain in London and different cities um it, one of the slogans one of the other slogans of the demonstration apart from don't attack Iraq was um freedom for Palestine mm -hmm. so there was this big coalition being built and it, it meant that um yeah, we had similar dynamics. We had people who were, you know, people who uh, were from Syrian families, for example, who living in this country, so, you know, exile communities. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk and frankly rubbish said about agency, you know. Yeah. We've got to, we've got to listen, listen to, uh syrians and stuff like that well yeah of course but like which syrians so do mm -hmm. do we have to listen to does that mean we should have listened to the agency of ahmed chalabi you know right exactly america's, america's preferred collaborator you know in in iraq you know um, you're so, kind of reminding me now oh sorry finish finish your thought and then i just want to you reminded me yeah something. there was a there was a there was a lot of the same dynamics and i think it it, it is absolutely that it was it what it was and it, i think it still is a, a weakness of the palestine solidarity movement in this country that it is viewed as kind of an isolated thing you know increasingly especially by the more ngo kind of end of the solidarity movement mm -hmm. um you know i, I I don't want to. I don't want to name names. He wants to say something, but he's afraid of what he misconstrued. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I don't want to name names of, um, of uh, NGO type groups that are involved in solidarity with Palestine because they're so few and far between. But maybe we'll save that for a future podcast. Yeah. But I, it, it does lead to problems like, you know, a, a huge section of southwest Syria has been occupied by Israel. The whole, mm -hmm. the population. Of 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 the uh, the Golan Heights, we're talking about yeah. the population that there was driven out by Israel in 1967. No, there was a Nakba of the population, basically of the Syrians there. They're still not being allowed to return in the same way. But we never talk about it as a solidarity movement. You know, the right. the, Golan, the occupation of the Golan Heights. You might get a passing mention of it occasionally. It is a big big. This is a big strategic problem. You know that we we don't we don't talk about it because that's not Palestine. It's Syria. And I, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily because, oh, you'll be viewed as pro-Assad, although that, that is probably... There's yeah. that, yeah. That, that is probably, that is a dynamic, I think, I mean, that is certainly a factor, especially in recent years, but I think it is a, a strategic weakness that we have of, you know, this lack of um, internationalism. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. really good to hear you're, you, you've got this view of the region but reporting from these different countries and just having family there um, that we, I think we need to emphasize more. You know, what I wanted to say about um, the issue of Palestine in Syria is like also on top of the Golan issue, which people forget the Israelis armed or sent weapons to and then gave medical treatment to some of the 
extremist groups that were operating in the Golan. In fact, I interviewed Al Qaeda, Israel armed Al Qaeda. It's a fact. Yeah, Israel armed Al Qaeda, one of its affiliates. But yeah, um, I actually interviewed a Syrian guy from the Golan who had initially joined the armed opposition groups. He was pretty young and just like didn't like Assad, but he like it's the Golan. It was a red line for him that they were accepting uh, aid from Israel, and so he switched sides. Hmm. Um, stories like that, of course, like never made it into the mainstream media, but that's fascinating. Like there's people who literally left these opposition groups to go fight with the government because of the opposition groups al uh, aligning with Israel. Um, but also there's the issue of Palestinians in Israel. And this was weaponized too by pro-regime change types when it was much more complicated. Like Palestinians we know are not a monolith and the Palestinian community even inside uh, Syria which you know um, was one of the countries that, tr that that typically treated Palestinian refugees much better than you know its neighbors did, uh, but the Palestinian community inside Syria was not united on this issue. There are groups of Palestinians who fought alongside the government, alongside the Syrian government, to oust what they saw as Al Qaeda and ISIS affiliated groups in places like Yarmouk which were then portrayed in Western media as being like freedom fighters yeah. when they were like, it, it, it was just completely batshit. Like even in Yarmouk, there was a split initially where like the Hamas affiliate in, in Yarmouk fought with the, um, what's it called? I'm like forgetting all my acronyms. Um, <laughs> fought with the, the PFLP. PFLP, thank yeah. you. The PFLP affiliate in yeah. Yarmouk, they actually opposed each other in the beginning and Hamas aligned with the opposition. And then when the opposition turned into ISIS, the, the, the Hamas aligned Palestinians actually switched sides and fought in the campaign alongside the Syrian army yeah. to liberate Yarmouk from ISIS. And this was like completely left out of the mainstream media coverage on this issue, which really tried to use the cause of Palestine in support of regime change. Like I've never seen the cause of Palestine in any other scenario used to support destroying another Arab country. But that's what was done here um, by a lot of actors. We don't need to name names, but it does need to like, I think at some point be looked back at and analyzed because of how detrimental that was right. to Palestine solidarity. There's people who don't talk to each other anymore. There's people who like have been expunged from Palestine solidarity, you know, I had a few of my talks canceled or, uh, that were not even about Syria, just right. talks about Palestine. Right. Talks about Palestine and Palestinian rights that had nothing to do with Syria were canceled because of pressure campaigns by pro-regime change uh, professors and academics. So like, it's like this did real significant damage and you can still feel the damage now. You can still feel the fracture now. Um, in the way that Palestine is organized around and discussed and about who gets to discuss Palestine, who gets the right. platform, the biggest platform to discuss Palestine. It's typically people who've never said a word about Syria or if they have, it's the imperialist position. Like mm -hmm. that's what it's like now. And it's just, you know, I hope that changes but I'm glad that we can like have a little bit of that conversation. Um, because if you can't like look back and, and recognize like what went wrong, you can't fix it. And then you leave this movement open to being fractured in the future. And we know the Israelis had like saw that opportunity even before it happened and deliberately, I think Ali covered it in, Ali's always reading these like stupid white papers that these pro-Israel organizations put out. And they actually have stated uh, before we should use the issue of Syria 
to fracture this movement. So like we know it's it, it's a goal of theirs to do as well. Yeah. Uh, it is so good to hear from you. Um, and thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Uh, we're going to link to your work on the gray zone, also breakthrough news and your podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Um, it's, uh, it's just, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you for having me, you guys. This is great. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.